Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Enjoying the lovely British summer? <laughs> no. Uh, Brian did suggest that I have the clicker, although I can't really be trusted with technology. <laughs> As you probably noticed from my piano playing. Now, I'm going to ask you a question to start with. I want you to answer this as honestly as possible. Put your hand in the air if you have ever read anything from the book of Leviticus in the last six months, apart from today's Bible reading, that is. Oh, some gold stars, three gold stars, but not many. Oh, four gold stars. <laughs> Okay, well, it's probably safe to say that the Old Testament book of Leviticus is probably one of the least visited books in the Bible. And I think you'll probably seldom hear preachers, ministers, pastors speaking on Leviticus. So this morning, I'm going to be rising to the challenge. And I reckon I've got about 15 to 20 minutes to explain the setting, to explain the relevance and the importance of Leviticus and to also tie it in with the New Testament and how it sort of uh, joins in that way. But also the big challenge is to make it interesting to you, the listeners. So I've got my work cut out, I reckon. So what I want you to do is jump with me into our time machine and we want to go back 3,500 years. Oh, and we've arrived already. Now this is a bit strange, isn't it? Look around, there's all these tents. There's a huge range of mountains behind us. I know where we are. We're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And this is the Israelites' encampment. They've escaped bondage from the land of Egypt, led by Moses, and they're now encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb. Sometimes it's referred to as Mount Horeb. And this is a time for the Israelites to regroup as a nation and to learn the importance of following God as they prepared to march toward the Promised Land. So the tabernacle has been completed and the Israelites are going to spend a period of time here listening to and obeying God. What is the tabernacle? Hopefully a slide will come up. Well, this is a modern reconstruction. Last week, if you were here, you would have seen a plan that Brian produced, a slide of the inner workings of the tabernacle, but it was built to exact dimensions, uh, but it was designed to be a portable structure, the tabernacle, or otherwise known as the tent of meeting. And effectively, um, it was a, possibly a precursor, I guess, to the permanent temple that would eventually be built in Jerusalem. But it was designed to be a movable place of worship, for the children of Israel. It was where God met with Moses and the people to reveal his will. The entire compound of the tabernacle would fill nearly half the area of a football field. And God is going to show the Israelites at this stage a new way of life with clear instructions on how sinful people can relate to a holy God. This is going to be a time of resting, a time of teaching, a time of building, and above all, a time for meeting with God. Now, Leviticus is undoubtedly a challenging book. Gone are the fascinating characters and wonderful stories of Genesis. Gone are the plagues and miracles found in Exodus, as depicted in the epic Hollywood films. 
Instead, the book of Leviticus contains a highly detailed, and it has to be said, often quite tedious, list of rules and regulations. Now, I understand that not all of you, like me, have a pedant's brain. I spent 40 years of my life getting quite excited reading minutiae of legislation, but I understand that the rest of you probably don't work like I do. But I think if you understand the book of Leviticus properly, the book supplies readers with rich wisdom and with practical instruction. So the glory of the Lord has filled the wilderness tabernacle and now God tells Moses to teach the people and the priests concerning everything concerning sacrifices, offerings, feasts, celebrations and holy days. So I guess we can probably explain Leviticus as a kind of guidebook really for instructing God's people about holy living and worship. And it contains everything Everything from sexual conduct to the handling of food, not at the same time, I hope, uh, to instructions for worship and religious celebrations. Everything is covered in Leviticus in detail. And why is this? Well, I think it's probably because God is interested in all aspects of our lives, moral, physical, and spiritual, and they're all important to God. Redemption that's found in the book of Exodus is the foundation here for cleansing, worship and service in the book of Leviticus. So there are important lessons from the book of Leviticus that each of us as sinful individuals but redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and trying to live in what appears to be an ungodly world and also lessons for all of us as a fellowship of believers that form this church. Now don't be tempted to dismiss Leviticus as a record of bizarre rituals of a different age. And whilst it might well be the case that if you weren't a vegetarian before you read Leviticus, then you're highly likely to become one after you've read it. Because undoubtedly, there's a lot of minute detail about animal sacrifices, about blood and the daubing of blood, and about what to do with various animal innards. But the practices made sense to the people of the day and they offer us important insights into God's nature and character. Animal sacrifice now seems obsolete and repulsive, but animal sacrifices were practiced in many cultures in the Middle East. And God used the form of sacrifice to teach his people about faith. God is reminding his people that sin needs to be taken seriously. When the Israelites saw the sacrificial animals being killed, they were made aware of the importance of their sin and guilt. Now our, casual, uh, our culture's casual attitude towards sin often ignores the cost of sin and need for repentance and restoration. Live for the moment. Don't worry about tomorrow. These sort of attitudes sum up our modern culture. And although many of the rituals of Leviticus were designed for the culture of the day, their purpose was to reveal a high and holy God 
who should be loved, obeyed and worshipped. They were intended to bring out true devotion of the heart. But surely we don't need rituals in our modern world, do we? Well, you might not realise it, but to some extent we have rituals of our own in this church. We give praise to God through our singing or music. We offer up and receive prayer. We read from God's holy scriptures and we remember God's ultimate sacrifice when Jesus Christ gave his life for us. And we share the communion table, we share the bread and the wine symbolizing Christ's body that was broken and his blood shed. The question is, do we do all of this with the true devotion of our hearts to God? It's a big question and possibly one that we're going to have to answer at some point before God. But God knows when we're being true and sincere and he knows when we're just going through the motions. But God sometimes seems so far away, doesn't he? If only I could hear him, if only I could see him. Have you ever felt that way? Now you might be struggling uh, with something in your life, whether it's a health issue, whether it's relationship difficulties, whether it's loneliness, money worries, bereavement, work problems, concerns for members of your family, concerns for our church. As human beings, we can often be overwhelmed by problems. And sometimes we can feel burdened by despair. And the sad fact is that however righteous you think you are, we are all riddled with sin. In the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, it reminds us that all have sinned. But the good news is that each of us was made in God's image. We were created to have a close relationship with God. And when fellowship is broken, we are incomplete and we need restoration. Communion with the living God is the essence of worship. It is vital. It touches the very core of our lives. And perhaps this is why the whole book of Leviticus, all 27 chapters, is dedicated to worship. So the overwhelming message of Leviticus is the holiness of God. Now our Old Testament Bible reading this morning was from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2 and in that verse God says, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. But also notice our New Testament reading from Mark 12 verses 28 to 34 when Jesus tells the scribe what the greatest commandments are and here Jesus quotes from the Old Testament firstly from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 to 5 and this is the opening words of the daily Jewish prayer hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind, with all your soul and with all your strength. What Jesus instructs as the first of all commandments is not simply a recommendation. 
that humans love God, not simply a suggestion, but it's a command that we do so. It's an order, it's a law, if you like, to be obeyed, an absolute requirement. And then Jesus goes on to quote, this time from Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18, when he says to the scribe, the second greatest commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. But how can we, an unholy, unholy people, approach a holy God? Well, the answer, I think, is first that sin has to be dealt with. And so the opening chapters of Leviticus gives us detailed instructions and instructions to the Israelites for offering sacrifices, which were the active symbols of repentance and obedience. The Israelites' sacrificial offerings were seasoned with salt as a reminder of the people's covenant or contract with God. Now, salt is a very good symbol of God's activity in a person's life because it penetrates, because it preserves, and because it aids in healing. God wants to be active in your life. Let him become part of you, penetrating every aspect of your life, preserving you from the evil all around, and healing you of your sins and shortcomings. In Arab countries, an agreement would be sealed with a gift of salt to show the strength and permanence of the contract. And in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 13, believers are called the salt of the earth. We use salt every day, don't we? I'm going to suggest that when you use your salt each day, let it remind you now that we are one of God's covenant people and that we can actively help preserve and purify the world. Now, I can't avoid the difficult part of Leviticus, which is to do with stoning people. There's a strict law in Leviticus that requires the stoning of someone who commits certain sins, like blasphemy or adultery. So how does this tie in with our understanding of a God as a God of love? Well, I think, firstly, the answer is this, that God is saying, I am the almighty God. Treat me with respect. Don't mess with me, otherwise you will fill my wrath. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray by saying, hallowed be thy name, or to put it another way, holy is your name. So we do need to respect God's almighty nature and not treat him lightly. But because stoning was part of an old mosaic law, these ancient and what seems to us barbaric practices would eventually be set aside by the sacrifice of Jesus for all mankind's sins. Jesus would go on to seal the new covenant with his blood so there would be no longer a need for these horrific practices such as stoning. God's love has intervened. But remember, even during the time of Jesus' ministry, he was threatened himself with being stoned to death because the Jews didn't understand or perhaps didn't believe that he was God in human form. In the book of John, 
chapter 10, verses 31 to 33, it says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. How mistaken could they be? And in John 8, verses 1 to 11, we have the story of the woman adulterer who was brought into the courtyard to be stoned. And Jesus drew in the sand and said to the baying mob who were about to stone her, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was in the centre of the court. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. He doesn't say, carry on your old life. No, sin has to be dealt with. And she had to turn away from sin and repent. And Jesus would subsequently pay the full price for all mankind's sin. Now another concept you'll find in Leviticus is the concept of the Jubilee year. Does anyone know what the word Jubilee means in Hebrew? It literally means ram's horn. And it's defined in Leviticus 25 verse 9 as a sabbatical year which occurs after seven cycles of seven years. Now, all those of you who know your seven times table will tell me seven sevens are? 49, very good. I would probably have to work it out on a calculator if Fiona's laughing at me because he knows I can't do sums. But the 50th year was to be a time of celebration and rejoicing for the Israelites. And the ram's horn would be blown on the 10th day of the seventh month to start the 50th year of Jubilee, the year of universal redemption. And the year of Jubilee involved a release from indebtedness. And in Leviticus 25, verses 23 to 38, it tells you that it, really, it involves uh, a release from all types of bondage. All prisoners and captives were to be set free. All slaves would be released. All debts were forgiven. All property was to be returned from its, to its original owners. So if you borrowed someone's lawnmower, you can only keep it for that 49 years, then you've got to return it. In addition, all labour was to cease for one year, and those bound by labour contracts were released from them. So one of the great benefits of the Jubilee was that both the land and the people were able to rest. And it presents a beautiful picture, doesn't it, of the New Testament themes of redemption and forgiveness. Christ is the Redeemer who came to set free those who are slaves and prisoners to sin. In Romans chapter 8 verse 2, 
It says, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And you can read also in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, it says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. The debt of sin we owe to God was paid on the cross as Jesus died on our behalf and we are forgiven the debt forever. And in Colossians 2 verses 13 to 14 it says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. The penalty of sin died with Christ on the cross. God has declared us not guilty. We are no longer in bondage, no longer slaves to sin. Having been freed by Christ, we can enter into the rest that God provides as we cease our labouring to make ourselves acceptable to God by our own works. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 9 to 10 reads, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. So as we've already heard, when God taught his people, the Israelites, to worship him, he placed great emphasis on sacrifices. And sacrifices were God's way for people to ask for forgiveness for their sins. And since creation, God has made it clear that sin separates us from him and that those who sin deserve to die. So God designed sacrifice as a way to seek forgiveness and to restore a relationship with him. Because he's a God of love and mercy, God decided from the very first that he would come into our world and die to pay the penalty for all humans. This he did in his son who, whilst, while still God, became a human being. And God made the ultimate sacrifice through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. In the book of Leviticus, whether it was animal sacrifices, such as bulls, goats, or sheep, or grain sacrifices, whatever the form of sacrificial offering, it had to be perfect, with no defects, no bruises. An image foretelling the ultimate sacrifice to come, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. Jesus has come and opened the way to God by giving up his life as the final sacrifice in our place. Now I want you to take a look at the next picture. This is a picture painted by the Victorian artist William Holman Hunt, um, founder, member of the pre-Raphaelite movement. Uh, his famous painting is the one of Jesus uh, holding the lantern. Jesus, the light of the world, knocking at the door. But this is one of his, and it's, uh, it depicts the image of a goat wandering in the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat. And we use the term scapegoat when we put the blame for something on an innocent person. And in Leviticus chapter 16, we read about the Day of Atonement, 
and this is the only day when the high priest is to enter the holiest part of the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant stood, containing the two stone tablets upon which the Ten Commandments had been given by God to Moses, and also the pledge or covenant from God for his chosen people that he would dwell among them and give guidance from his mercy seat. And the high priest would be required to sacrifice a bull for the sins of the priests and a goat for the sins of the lay people. Then the priest was required to send a second goat out into the desert or wilderness with its horns wrapped in red cloth to symbolize the sins of the community. Jesus became the sacrificial scapegoat, completely without sin, and yet we put him on a cross to die. The Lamb of God, perfect and without blemish, sacrificed instead of us. And all mankind's sins, past, present and future, heaped upon his shoulders, his body broken and his blood spilt, flowing red like the red cloth on the horns of the scapegoat. And so great was that mountain of human sin that our holy God had to turn his face away from his beloved son. And daylight turned into night and the earth shook and trembled. Buildings started to crumble. People ran screaming, wondering if God was about to wreak a terrible revenge. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This was the final sacrifice. No more sacrificial offerings. The old covenant was finished with. The new covenant applied to all mankind, not just the Jewish people. Jesus went to be sacrificed willingly in obedience to God. All because God loves you and he loves me. And God knows each one of us by name. And he wants to have a personal relationship with each of us. Now, I don't know about you, but I find saying sorry very, very difficult. But each one of us needs to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God, for my sin. I now seek your forgiveness. You may have said it many times before. You may have never said it. But now, in the quiet of this moment, you can say it in your heart. And then, by the power of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we can be washed clean of sin by his blood. We can be made holy to come into the presence of the most holy God. We can cease our laboring just as in the Jubilee year. We can rest and we can be still in God's presence. Because God says, be holy, because I, the Lord, your God, am holy.
Shall we pray?